Well, take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Again, this morning we are continuing our study of 1 Samuel. And this is the second week that we are in the text. Uh, We introduced it uh, one Sunday and then spent uh, one uh, message last week going about halfway through chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses uh, 12 through 36, but we're only going to read a portion of that this morning. We're going to read verses 12 through 21. So after you've found 1 Samuel 2, stand with me and let's uh, read that together. Beginning of verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. And with any man, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, And then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful today for so many things, but especially today we are grateful for the influence of godly fathers. And uh, Lord, I know I personally give thanks today for the influence of my own father. And uh, Lord, we are grateful today that uh, uh, fathers have an opportunity to not only to support uh, their families and provide for them, but also to uh, be a, a difference maker and to, to make a difference for the sake of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that all of us as fathers, that we would be uh, about that, that we would be looking for every opportunity. And some of us who are older now to the next generation as we seek to be a godly influence. And, Lord, help us in that. Give us wisdom to do that. And, Lord, we pray this morning also that uh, you would uh, just be with us as we go through your word, as we uh, look at what your word has to say about uh, godly leadership. Uh, And, Lord, uh, how you are at work in your uh, divine providence. And, Lord, that we can learn some important lessons from your word today. 
Lord, as we worship, may our hearts be uh, just filled with gratitude. May we express that worship with uh, lips that give praise to you. And Lord, may we glorify your name. And Lord, we uh, ask all these things in the wonderful and strong name of, of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Just before the Great Awakening broke out in the American colonies in the 1730s and 40s, Samuel Blair wrote that religion lay, as it were, a dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. Genuine believers were ready to throw in the towel. But then the Spirit of God began to move, and the rest is history. In many ways, this is exactly what happened in Israel in the period of time that we're focused on this summer. The passage that we will be looking at this morning highlights this contrast. So I have called it Hope in the Midst of Judgment. Of course, we expect opposition from the world, but as Dale Davis puts it, what can we do when the creeping death seeps inside the church, especially when her human leaders are indifferent in faith and unholy in life? He says, it is a bleak hour indeed when the light of the world is part of the darkness. This is what we see in our text this morning. The regime of Hophni and Phinehas was just such a time. It is about as bad as it gets. And yet the Lord did not abandon his people. He was there in both judgment and grace. And while he was in the process of dealing with this evil regime, he was at the same time raising up godly leadership for his people. This passage naturally divides into two main sections, but because there is an additional point, we will take it in three In the first half of this passage, we see a clear-cut contrast. We see this contrast in verses 11 through 26. Here, Yahweh is at work, but in a sense, he is working so quietly behind the scenes that we would not know it apart from the commentary of his word. In this passage, we see a visible contrast. Mass at Shiloh, and at the same time, the invisible hand of God working to fix it. We need to see the mass first, which is the evil of God's priests. In Hannah's prayer of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, she alluded to the arrogance verse 3, the mighty, verse 4, the wicked, verse 9, and those who contend with Yahweh in verse 10, and now, lo and behold, here they are. But they're not what we might expect. They're not Ammonites or Philistines, the obvious enemies of God's people. They are 
the priests serving in the tabernacle. Worship had become a farce at Shiloh. Here we have the first example of religious charlatans mentioned in the Bible. These men men were running a religious racket right in the house of God. As worshipers were cooking their portion of the peace offering for their post-sacrificial meal with their family, a priest would come by with his infamous three-pronged barbecue fork, and he would thrust it into their pot or kettle, and whatever would come out would be quickly carted off to the priest's quarters. And according to Leviticus 7, the priest was already allotted the breast and the right leg, but the Shiloh forkman wanted more. But it was even worse than this. These two priests were coming in before the fat was burned and demanding raw meat from the worshipers. They all knew this wasn't right. They all knew that the priest was supposed to burn the fat on the altar to show proper reverence to Yahweh. But these two priests who had turned thugs were now even threatening to take the meat by force if necessary. They were demonstrating absolute contempt for the offerings of God. And this is what we might call their liturgical offenses. Ah, but it didn't stop there. Verses 22 to 25 detail their moral offenses. There were... There was even more rottenness here in Shiloh, and everybody knew about it. Hophni and Phinehas were having sexual relations with the women who were serving near the tabernacle. Now, this was a common practice among the pagan Canaanite people around them, but it should never have taken place among God's people. Exodus 38.8 refers to women who served at the doorway of the tabernacle of the congregation. This may have been the women who were involved here. We really don't know, but we do know this was evil in the sight of the Lord. These were evil priests, without doubt. Verse 12 calls them literally sons of Belial. That is a frequent phrase in the books of Samuel, and it is significant to note that the Apostle Paul later used this phrase to mean the personification of evil. He even uses the term Belial as a reference to Satan in 2 Corinthians 6.15. The term originally meant wickedness. It can mean base or worthless or wicked. And as 1 Samuel 2.12 goes on to say, the root problem was they did not know God. These were unbelievers that were serving in the office of the priesthood. Listen, folks, this would be just as bad as having a lost person as the pastor of a church in our day and time. By the way, it does happen, and it happens more often than we would want to admit this was a bad situation 
Verse 12 says, they did not know the Lord. How tragic that such words would be used to describe the leaders of God's people. But given the root, we should expect the fruit. Their sinful actions here are simply the result of their lack of a relationship with the Lord. But before we leave this side of the contrast, let's get a few details from the text about these evil priests. One of the key details that is important here is the fact that the Mosaic law defined exactly what the priest's portion was to be. This is given in detail in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 31 to 35. It was also spelled out about the burning of the fat. So in essence, this was a gross act of disobedience and disregard for God's word. They didn't care what God said. They were determined to have their own way. Unfortunately, this is still all too common, even in the church. Many times we do as we choose to do, rather than what God's Word says. We may know what God's Word says, but we choose to disregard it. Even those in leadership positions do this. We must be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Now, another important detail that we need to note is how Eli responded to all this. Today's Father's Day, and I have chosen not to do a Father's Day sermon, but here we find a father that should not be emulated. Look with me at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. And he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Eli heard about their flagrant immorality. It was common knowledge in Israel. Everybody knew about it. Hophni and Phinehas had turned the tabernacle of God into a brothel. They had turned it into a place where sin was committed rather than a place where it was confessed and cleansed. So what did Eli do? Well, he did what many parents try to do today. He tried to reason with them. I mean, look with me at verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people, know my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. How did that turn out? Well, it worked out about as well as when parents today try to reason with their children instead of dealing decisively with sin through discipline and consequences. Look at verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Eli tried to warn them of the danger they were in, but the warning fell on deaf ears. They were so deep in their sin and unbelief that the warning did no good. And by the way, the first phrase of verse 25 is one of the most difficult to interpret in this entire passage. Look at it with me. 
the New American Standard has, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? I think the meaning of this is, if God judges one person's sin against another, how much more will he judge blatant sin against his own name? And notice the last part of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Dr. Davis says we would do well to allow verse 25b to percolate in our minds. It's easy to read this and think, well, Hophni and Phinehas did not listen to Eli, so consequently God decided to put them to death. But that's not what the text says. It says that Eli's sons did not listen to him because for Yahweh decided to put them to death. Davis rightly observes Hophni's and Phineas's resistance was not the rationale for Yahweh's judgment, but the results of his judgment. And God was perfectly just in this judgment. It was their persistent rebellion that led not only to God's judgment, but also to the fact that they would not heed the warning of their father. And God determined to kill them because they persisted in their evil ways and they refused ample opportunities to repent. There's an important point of application for us here. This text teaches that a person can become so entrenched in sin and rebellion against God that the Lord will confirm him in that. So much so that he will remain utterly deaf and unmoved by any warnings of judgment that others may give. It is possible for a person to become so hardened in unbelief and sin and rebellion that he becomes immune to all calls of repentance. Folks, this is a very dangerous place to be. One older commentator wrote that Hophni and Phinehas experienced the fate of men who deliberately sin against the light, who love their lusts so well that nothing will induce them to fight against them. They were so hardened that repentance became impossible and it was necessary for them to undergo the full retribution of their wickedness. What a bad place for them to be. How tragic. And we need to be very careful, by the way, how we respond to this kind of teaching. Some might want to challenge this notion, claiming that this makes God deficient in mercy. These are those who want to believe that God is all love. Others might simply be intellectually curious about it, wondering about the mechanics of such hardening, wondering at what precise point in sin's progression that it becomes impossible to repent. But listen, 
both the curious and the critic are wrong. Our place is not to question or to comprehend, but to simply tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. We should tremble before a God like that. Well, we find this very same principle of judicial hardening in other places in the Scripture. We find it in Romans chapter 1. And there Paul declares it is still a biblical principle even in the New Testament era. As he talks about God giving them over to the evil passions of their hearts. Interestingly, this is portrayed in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress by the character Backslider, who is a man in a cage. And he says, among other things, I have so hardened my heart, I cannot repent. Now, we could paint Hophni and Phineas in this cage. What a tragic place to be. But scattered all throughout this mess, we find these little glimmers of hope. So we need to move over to the other side of the contrast and see the emergence of God's prophet. At three points in this long passage, we see references to Samuel. These Samuel notes stand as quiet contrast to the evil deeds of Hophni and Phinehas. They are silent witnesses of God's provision for his people. These Samuel notes are found in verse 11, verses 18 to 21, and verse 26. They are very important in this passage because they tell us God is already at work providing new leadership for his people. And think about it. This is all being done with no fanfare and no hype. There are no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. Everything is being done quietly behind the scenes. And by the way, that is the way God usually works. In what may seem like the darkest moment, he is already at work preparing for the next moment. Just when all seems lost and there appears to be no way out of the night, God moves in and silently whispers, Remember, Samuel, Samuel is serving the Lord. Several years ago, Leadership Magazine, which is a ministry journal, published a story about a B-17 bombing run over a German city during World War II. Nazi anti-aircraft flak hit the gas tanks of this bomber several times, but there was no explosion. The morning after the raid, the pilot went down to ask the crew chief for the shell that had hit the gas tank. He wanted it for souvenir. The crew chief told him there were 11 unexploded shells in the gas tank. The shells 
had been sent to the armorer to be diffused. And then intelligence had picked them out, picked them up. The armorers found that the shells contained no explosive charges. They were all empty except for the last one. In the final shell, there was a note written in the Czech language. When intelligence finally found someone who could read it, they discovered it said, this is all we can do for you now. Turns out there were these Czechs who had been compelled to work in a munitions plant for the Nazi war effort. They did not blow up the plant or try to assassinate Hitler. They simply did not put charges in the shells they produced. It was all done very quietly, but it was very effective. It made a big difference. Such is the way God often works for his people. He does it behind the scenes in his providence with little or no fanfare. And some Christians need to learn that God's work is not usually noisy or dramatic. It's quiet. So in our present passage, we shouldn't become too discouraged as long as we see little Samuel running around. Because God has a plan, and he's going to carry it out. Look with me at verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. Shining brightly against the dark background of national sinfulness was this young man, Samuel. Then we have the more extensive Samuel note in verses 19 to 21. And one of the clearest aspects of this contrast is seen when you compare verses 19 to 21 with verses 22 to 26. Here you find on one side a delightful scene over against a very ominous scene. In verse 19, you see a mother's love compared to a father's sorrow in verse 22. In verse 20, you have Eli's blessing compared with Eli's rebuke in verses 23 to 25a. In verse 21, you see God's provision of life compared with God's purpose of death in verse 25b. There's a clear parallelism between the two scenes, but the parallels highlight The difference is, in one case, God is giving life. In the other, he is resolved to bring death. The highlight of verses 19 to 21 is found in the fact that God gave Hannah five additional children to to replace the one she had loaned to the Lord. This is what we might call vintage Yahweh. This is our gracious God at work. We give to him and he gives back to us and we can never outgive God. Or as one commentator put it, 
no sacrifice ever seems to impoverish one of Yahweh's servants. We also see in this section the detail that Hannah would make a little robe every year and bring it to Samuel when she went up to Shiloh to make her offering to the Lord. Now, why did she need to bring him a robe every year? Because he was growing. Verse 26 says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. And, of course, that is very similar to what we see in the New Testament later about the Lord Jesus Christ. Samuel is growing and maturing, and this, would, this is what gives us the element of hope in this dark time. God will begin to speak to and through this young man to transform a nation. And such godly leadership was desperately needed then. It is still very much needed in our day and time. Well, Hannah and her husband now pass from the scene of this story, but their household of noisy children gives testimony to our giving God. And the scene shifts now from a clear-cut contrast to a conclusive condemnation. In verses 27 to 36, we find this long section on God's judgment of the house of Eli. We don't know his name. We don't know where he came from. But out of nowhere came a man of God, a prophet. He came to bring Eli the word of God. We could call this the merciful meddling of God's word. Eli had rebuked his sons for their evil deeds, but he had taken no action to remove them from this holy office. In our day and time, we would say there was no church discipline carried out. And for this neglect, the judgment of God would have to fall. If you look at the message from this man of God, you see that he began with a rehearsal of God's grace, he moved into an accusation of the wrong, and then he ended with an announcement of God's judgment. Of course, previous examples of God's grace always makes present sin appear more severe. And so he begins there. God had granted Eli's father, probably Aaron, the privilege of the priesthood with the service at God's altar, the burning of the incense, the wearing of the ephod, the enjoyment of the food offerings. But in verse 29, he asks, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Now, to kick at something meant to defy it or treat it with contempt. This is the central charge here. Eli is treating God's offering with contempt. But there are some interesting details here. First, note that Eli's sin was that he honored his sons above God. Of course, 
fathers should love their sons and want the best for them, but there comes a time when we as Christian fathers must honor God first and foremost, especially in an instance like this where there are rebellious and sinful sons. Eli may have verbally rebuked his sons, but he had done nothing to actually remove them from the office of priesthood. He should have at least done that. God's honor was at stake. These sins were all very public in nature. Everyone knew what was going on. And if Eli could not prevent his sons from practicing immorality, at least he could have prevented that from happening as priests. But he did nothing. In God's eyes, this was pure idolatry. He was honoring his sons instead of God. And I think there's a very important point of application for us today. Davis writes, how easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone, that equates niceness with love and thereby ignores God's law and essentially despises his holiness. Honoring God must be a priority in the church. And sometimes the only way to do that is to remove false prophets and charlatans from their positions of loftiness for the sake of God's glory. There was public, scandalous sin going on in Shiloh. And since God's priests did not have the courage or wisdom to remove it, God decided he would remove it himself. And he would remove it by killing Eli's sons and later Eli himself. But this is something that we desperately need to learn from. We need to make sure we don't fall into the same trap that Eli fell into. We need to make sure that we're honoring God above all, including our families. And by the way, there's another interesting detail here that may give some insight into why Eli Eli was not willing to deal with his sons himself. Go back to verse 29 again. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people, Israel? Notice the word yourselves. The way this is used here may imply that Eli was benefiting from his son's abuse. He himself may have been getting in on the extra steak dinners that his sons were lining up. He himself may have gotten fat off of the Lord's offerings. One older commentator wrote, What restrained Eli from taking vigorous action to vindicate God's honor was his unwillingness to lose for his sons the lucrative office of the priesthood. He was willing to rebuke them. He was grieved at their misdeeds, but he was not willing 
to give up the wealth and plenty which flowed into his house from the offerings of Israel. Oh, church leader, guard your hearts. Make sure you are honoring God above all else. And make sure you're not compromising for the sake of material gain in any way. Well, I'm calling this the conclusive condemnation. And here it comes, beginning in verse 30. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. God had promised Aaron's descendants that they would always be priests. But this flagrant wickedness in the house of Eli has led to the forfeiture of this privilege. In fact, go on to verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. This simply means that God's judgment would cut short the lives of Eli's descendants. None of them would reach old age. And here in this pronouncement of judgment, we see the promise of the decimation of Eli's family line. We see a ray of mercy in God promising not to eliminate all of his descendants. But then we see the confirmation of this judgment in the fact that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would both die on the very same day. And that's how he would know this word of prophecy was valid. Verse 36 adds another detail to this judgment by implying that those who are not cut off in the flower of their youth would end up worse off than that because they would have to beg for bread to survive. So this is a serious judgment against the wickedness of these priests and the father who should have known better. And as we will see, Eli will pay a bitter price. But this account does not end on a negative note. It ends on a positive one. So lastly, we see a coming conqueror. Verse 35 gives us a glimpse of great hope in the midst of this dark picture of judgment. Look at it with me. Now, this is God speaking. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. Human resistance and disobedience can never be stymied and can never stymie God's purpose. As one author puts it, trenchant rebellion does not send El Shaddai into a state of helpless frustration. You don't ever see God wringing his hands in despair because he always has a plan. 
And if certain leaders prove to be untrustworthy and unusable, God will accomplish his purpose apart from them and in spite of them. And he will raise up leaders that he can use. In his own time, God is going to remove Hophni and Phinehas from the scene. And he's going to raise up another priest, a faithful priest, in their place. We'll raise up a priest that will do God's will. But who is that faithful priest that is referred to in verse 35? Now, many assume this is pointing to Samuel. And although it might seem to be in the light of the context of this passage, but we're going to see that Samuel will serve God as a prophet, not as a priest. Chapter 3 will introduce him as a prophet par excellence, but it is not likely that this fits with the reference to the faithful priest in this verse. In light of the teaching of 1 Kings 2, 26-35, it is likely that this is a reference to Zadok and not to Samuel. When Solomon banishes Abiathar from priestly service, which was one of Eli's descendants. The word of Yahweh, which he spoke about the house of Eli in Shiloh, will have been fulfilled. That's what it says in 1 Kings 2.27. I mean, listen to it in the New American Standard. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now, that's pretty clear, is it not? Now, it is true that this verse only specifies that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning Eli's house, that it does not specify who the faithful priest is in 1 Samuel 2.35. However, Solomon's elevation of Zadok as the sole high priest in the place of Abiathar implicitly places him in the role of that faithful priest. And we see that 1 Chronicles 6, 8 through 15, indicates that the descendants of Zadok remain as high priests as long as the monarchy existed. So this is probably a reference to Zadok. But there's one last critical point that we need to see in verse 35. Notice the last phrase, and he will walk before my anointed always. The anointed here is another reference to the Messiah. We saw a similar reference in Hannah's song in chapter 2, verse 10. The reference to the anointed anticipates the kingdom that is going to be initiated by Solomon or by Samuel. But beyond that, it anticipates the Lord's Messiah who will come through this line of kings and would rule and reign forever. But what is the lesson that we need to learn from this account? What is the application for us today? The basic message of verse 35 is this. Even though God's kingdom will suffer from arrogant, immoral 
unrepentant leaders, he is determined to carry out his ultimate purpose and nothing can ever stop that. He will have proper leadership for his people. This may mean that judgment has to come to the house of God. This may mean that he has to remove some who are unfaithful. But he will raise up faithful men who will do his will and will lead his people as he desires. And those of us who are in leadership need to make sure we're always being faithful to him. We need to make sure we're not compromising in any way. And we need to remember that God has promised that he will build his church and that there is nothing that can ever stop that. And it is in this promise that we find our security and our firm and lasting hope. He works behind the scenes in his divine providence and he will accomplish his purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you would help us to understand what you have for us here, that we would respond to your word now as you would want us to. Lord, I pray if there's anyone that is here today that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to know you. But that all of us as believers would would just uh, check our own hearts and see where we stand with you and, and see if there's anything that we need to deal with in our own lives and And, Lord, that we might be faithful followers of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.